Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle, creator of the Teenage Personality Quiz. Head to TalkingToTeens.com for a free PDF explaining how your teenager thinks. Today with Dr. Stephen Sloman. He is the author, along with Philip Fernbach, of the phenomenal book, The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. Dr. Sloman is a cognitive psychologist and a professor at Brown University, and he studies knowledge and how we have gaps in our knowledge that we're not aware of and uh, where those come from and how we can become more aware of them. I just thought this book was fascinating and it's not specifically about teenagers, but so many things in this book hit me as issues that are very, very prevalent during the teenage years. So I'm very excited to talk to you today about the ideas from your book and um, see if we can come up with anything that parents might find helpful in dealing with teens. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thanks so much for having me, Andy. It's a great pleasure to be here and I hope I have something to contribute to the conversation. So the very first thing right in the introduction here that um, I thought was really interesting that is a kind of a theme of the book is what is thinking even for? Why do we even think? Um, and what's the point of it? Well, what we propose in the book is that thinking is an extension of action, right? People, like all organisms, aren't designed to act, right? That's how we evolved in order to act successfully in the world. And the main function of thought, we think, is to make that action more effective. If you uh, consider what it is we think about, we think about how the world works, what's going to happen in the future, what happened in the past, and why it happened, who our relationships are, and how we can get things done. And all of that ties into the question, how can we act in such a way as to make our situation better? Okay, so thinking is an order to help us act more effectively in the world. Well, what kinds of thinking is going to be best for that? Well, sometimes mathematical thinking will be helpful, right? Like it's often useful to count how many pieces of fruit we have so that we can distribute them fairly. But the truth is that mostly what we need to know in order to act effectively is how the world works. If we're going to build a canoe, then we have to understand patterns of water. We have to understand what floats and what doesn't float. We have to understand how the human body is going to be able to sit comfortably 
in order to be able to propel the canoe forward. So in the end, the most useful thing for us is to understand causes and effects, how our actions in particular are going to produce the effects that we want them to produce. So the second big idea of the book is that we kind of tend to think we know more than we really do. This idea of the uh, illusion of explanatory depth. Can you explain what is the illusion of explanatory depth and how does this test work? Sure. So what Leon Rosenblatt and his advisor at Yale and Frank Kyle did was they took a bunch of everyday objects like zippers and ballpoint pens and toilets. And they said to people, how well do you understand how these things work? Right on a one to seven scale, your understanding of how these things work. So people gave a number and they indicated that they felt they had a pretty good understanding of how these things work. And then Rosenblatt and Kyle said to them, okay, now explain in as much detail as you can how they work. Give as full and complete an account as possible of the functioning of these everyday objects. And what happened is they basically stumped people. People went, uh, well, uh, and they really didn't have much to say. So then when Rosenblatt and Kyle again said to them, how well do you understand how these things work? People lowered their ratings. In other words, people themselves admitted that they had lived in an illusion of understanding, that they had thought they had understood how these things work better than in fact they do. People live in this illusion that they understand when in fact they don't. So this I think is fascinating because it's something that parents of teenagers talk about a lot. They just think they know everything, but they really have so much to learn. And how can I just help them see that, you know, they're not really all so smart as they think they are, and they maybe need to be a little more humble and not jump into risky situations with so much confidence. To me, this is a really interesting idea, and you guys keep hitting on it throughout the book, and you have um, go into a lot of depth and have some really cool solutions or ideas on how to combat it in the end. So I love this cognitive reflection test that you talk about on page 81 and 82. And you have these questions that come from a book of riddles originally, but one of them is a bat and a ball cost $1.10. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? And most people say 10 cents, which is not the right answer. In a lake, there's a patch of lily pads. Every day, the patch doubles in size. If it takes 48 days for the patch to cover the entire lake, how long would it take for the patch to cover half the lake? The first answer that comes to mind is 24, which is incorrect. And then this last one was, if it takes five machines, five minutes to make five widgets, how long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? And no, it's not 100. Um, but yet, 
that's the answer that we just really want to say. Uh, so I, I love this test, but what is it? Why is this important? And what does this test uh, teach us about the way people think? So I love the test too. And it was developed by a guy named Shane Fredericks. And I think the basic thing it illustrates best is that there are two different kinds of thinking, right? There's the kind of thinking that generates intuitions. So consider the first question, about a ball costs a dollar 10, the bat costs a dollar more than the ball, how much does the ball cost? Almost everybody has 10 cents come to mind. Right. So we don't know why it comes to mind or how it comes to mind. And in fact, despite a bunch of studies, we still don't really understand why 10 cents comes to mind, but it does. It's an intuitive response, but we can try to verify it. That is, we could do a little arithmetic and figure out whether it's the right answer. And if we do that arithmetic, we discover, well, if the, if the ball costs 10 cents and the bat costs a dollar more, then the bat costs a dollar 10. And together, they cost a dollar 20. So that's the <laughs> wrong answer, because together, they're supposed to cost a dollar 10. So it's not that it's hard to figure out the right answer. It just requires a little bit of deliberation. So I think what this test shows is that first, there's a distinction between intuition, answers that just pop to mind, and deliberation. That deliberative process is a different kind of cognitive process. But what's really interesting about the test is that some people pass it with flying colors, though most people don't. So what does it take to pass it with flying colors? Well, you have to be able to suppress that original response. You have to say, oh, I'm not going to respond 10 cents. First, I'm going to check to see if I'm right. And if you suppress that response, you can figure out that you're wrong and compute the right response. But most people just don't. Most people just blurt out what comes to mind. Right. And in fact, it seems to me that's exactly how we think about many teenagers, right? Yeah. <laughs> said so that's why I bring it up. They just do the first thing that comes to their head. Oh, that sounds fun. Let's do it. Yeah. Without taking that moment to just assess to, hey, well, I have this impulse that maybe it would be fun to do this crazy thing. Um, but let me just like think that through for a second and see if it really adds up, you know? Um, and oh no, actually, wait a minute. On second thought, it doesn't. Maybe I shouldn't do that. And it, it occurs to me that that's, you know, what all parents would hope that their teenager would do. And so it's fascinating to me that, you know, this isn't just a teenage problem. This is a people problem. This is a human brain kind of problem. But it does seem like it's really apparent during the teenage years. So I guess I just was wondering if there's anything that helps that or that would help your teenager to get better at like taking that extra second and just thinking about it before they blurt it out or say, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Well, that's uh, a, a great question and a critical question. And before I get to that, let me just say a couple of things. You know, when I was thinking about what I was going to say on your show, because, you know, what do I know about teenagers? I mean, I did raise two of them, so that's pretty much the extent <laughs> of my knowledge. But, you know, so I was thinking about what I would say on your show and, and what I thought was, well, teenagers are just our people too, right? <laughs> 
And what I can say is that all of these complaints we have about teenagers and the concerns we have and the difficulties we have in communication are complaints and concerns and difficulties that we have with everybody, right? There's, in a sense, there's, there's nothing really special about teenagers as far as I can tell, except that, you know, perhaps they've developed fewer strategies for dealing with the kinds of conflicts and challenges that everybody deals with. In order to provide an answer to your question, I'd, I'd like to raise the sort of the second big idea of the book, which is an attempt to explain why it is that people live in this illusion of understanding. And what we propose is that we live in this illusion of understanding because we fail to distinguish what we know from what others know. So I think I understand how a toilet works because there's a plumber who understands how the toilet works and I have access to the plumber's knowledge. So the knowledge is actually sitting in the plumber's head, not in mine, but I can use that knowledge. And in general, we've developed in tribes, in societies and communities in which we're not limited to our own personal knowledge. We have access to all kinds of knowledge in the heads of the people around us. So the reason we have this illusion that we understand how things work is because there's a sense in which we actually do understand. It's just not our personal individual selves that understand, it's our communities that understand. We understand. Exactly. And yet we succeed as a community. And we're constantly, like every moment of the day, we're taking advantage of that. We're taking advantage of knowledge that sits in other people's heads. And, and we do it. So what's interesting is that we do it without complete awareness that we are depending on other people, right? That's the illusion of understanding. We think it's in our heads. Why? Well, because for the most part, it doesn't really matter, right? Like as, as long as I can use the technology, it just doesn't matter that I don't understand it. It doesn't matter until something breaks. Right. So when you think about that from a teenager's perspective, right? Like here they are wondering what they should believe, how they should behave in the world, who they should identify with. And I actually think those are very much the same questions, right? What they believe is re really turns out to be the same question as who should they identify with? Because since we know so little and we depend on our communities for knowledge, then what we believe becomes a matter of who we trust. It becomes a matter of who's around us and whose ideas we're going to accept. And so teenagers are, you know, like people caught in the middle of political conflict who have no choice but to decide what side they're going to fall on. So if everybody around them, if all the adults around them and all the other kids around them all believe the same thing, then everything's golden, right? And there's no problem. There's no decision to make. 
But what if the adults around you disagree? What if some of them are conservatives and others are liberals? And then your friends, well, they may think something else entirely. So now you have to decide which community you're, you're going to go with. And there are huge consequences to this choice. Because it not only determines what you believe and who you're, how you're going to act, it also determines who's going to like you and who's going to hate you. So I love this study that you talk about where you have these people come into the lab and you tell them a list of a bunch of things to remember. And it's Mm -hmm. like couples, right? Mm -hmm. And then you quiz them on the things and you find that usually there's like one member of the couple that will remember all the more technology-y things and another one will remember all the things, you know, that are furniture. There's one that'll be really good at that. Or if it's related to wines, then this person will remember it. And you give them all the exact same list of things, but you find that they kind of like specialize a little bit and without even talking to each other and saying, oh, you remember that one. I'll remember this one. They just naturally remember the things that they're that they're good at or that they see as like their area. And they just kind of don't remember the things that they feel like the other person is going to be better at. And I, I feel like that just happens in any group. And I wonder how, I think, you know, as a teenager, it's like um, you just, I don't even need to try to figure out some of this stuff like because there's someone else in my group who's who's got that or who knows that and is makes choices for us in this area or in that area and how to be cool or in how to get girls because there's someone you know who's better at that than me and I'll just let him tell me what to do when it comes to this or that when it comes to working out or when it comes to whatever you know mm-hmm. um and so how do you help your kids start to like see that and um be more conscious about what things they, you know, want to get good at and when they want to just let defer to other people? Yeah, that, that's an interesting and tough question. Let me just provide one little corrective. So the, the study that you're talking about was actually done by people in Dan Wagner's lab. It's, it's not a study we do. They, they refer to it as transactive memory. And basically, the idea is that memory gets distributed over a group that, you know, if you're a wine expert and people are talking about wine, then you'll remember what they said. But if you're not a wine expert, if you're instead, you know, the football expert and people are talking about wine, then you won't even hear it if the wine expert is in your group. If the wine expert is hearing it, then you'll just sort of automatically give them responsibility for remembering that information. So the the general idea is that there's a what what sometimes is called a distribution of cognitive labor, right? That happens automatically. Yeah. That we each fill our roles. So, you know, I'm the expert on football and someone else is the expert on soccer and someone else and we just automatically assign certain memory tasks and problem-solving tasks to the person that is the expert in that domain. So to, to try to apply this to your question, how should we talk to teenagers about this? I think what we have to do 
is acknowledge that there's a tension, right? Because on one hand, we can't all be responsible for everything. And the teenager can't be responsible for everything. You know, if the teenager is bad at math or not interested in math, then they're bad at math, not interested in math. You know, we can't all be all things to all people. Right, right. Hopefully, they have some specialty. They have something that they bring to the table, right, that they are the local expert on. And, you know, my understanding of the data is that if you give a kid a sense of expertise, right, so that they're the one that gets appealed to on a particular subject, they don't have to be appealed to on all subjects. They just have to be a local expert. And if they have that sense, then that's going to increase their self-esteem. It's going to make them feel like they're contributing to the group. And they're actually going to be better at learning everything else as well. That is so interesting. But there's this tension, right? Because on one hand, especially in today's society, like it's one thing if you grow up in a tribe and you never leave that tribe. Right. And there's certain there's a certain social role you fill, right? Like you're the expert canoe builder. And that's all you ever have to be. But the thing is that, you know, all is change. Right. And sometimes the person who does the hunting dies, right? Or gets sick. And someone else has to fill that role. And in today's society, we don't live in a tri in a fixed tribe. We're constantly in different social situations. So we constantly have to morph and become new people. And so then it becomes so much harder, right? It becomes so much harder to like be the expert on X because there may be a different expert on X in the next group of people that you're with. So you have to fill some other role. So I think that's the complication. Yeah. And if you establish your identity as like one thing and then you, uh, I'm the person who's really good at this thing. And then you get to um, a new environment where suddenly there's a lot of other people who are better than you at that. Then you could start feeling lost a little bit or like, who am I? I used to be the basketball guy in middle school, but now here I am in high school and I didn't even make varsity or whatever, you know, and that seems like it creates a real like identity crisis a little bit or a struggle. Boy, I see that every day at, at my Ivy League university, right? Because we accept these yeah. students that, you know, were always the best at most of the things they high did. School. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then they yeah. come to Brown and all of a sudden, you know, they're not the best anymore. And in fact, they may not even oh, be maybe. particularly good. They may not be accepted into the choir or, you know, onto the crew team or whatever, because there are so many yeah. people that are better than them. So some of them handle it really poorly. They get depressed. They get anxious. They become show-offs and, and are difficult and lose direction. And others handle it really well. And I think the ones who handle it really well, what they do is they appreciate the contributions that everyone else is making. They don't see themselves 
as having to be the star, mm. but rather they see themselves as someone who can benefit by all the richness around them. Don't you love it when you meet people like that who who see greatness and appreciate it? Yeah. And don't feel like they have to one-up you or compete with you or something to prove that they're really good at this, you know, thing in order to feel like they matter. It's not easy, though, huh? It's not easy. It's not easy. So in my mind, it's about understanding that you're all in it together. And if you have other people on your team who are better than you, well, that's to your advantage. We're here with Dr. Stephen Sloman talking about how to handle know-it-all teenagers. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. And so if a parent comes along claiming a kind of certainty that they have no right to, then the teenager is actually absolutely correct to say, you don't know what you're talking about because you're pretending to have certainty right. that you, you shouldn't have. Either remove the teenager from that situation, which you know could be devastating for your relationship with the teenager, or you have to somehow convince the whole peer group that your teenager hangs out with that maybe smoking pot isn't such a good idea. You have to operate at the social level. You know, encouraging someone to find out for themselves is is a great idea. But if if a teenager, you know, goes and Google's the question, how 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 unhealthy is vaping, um, or what are the facts about vaping's health, then it's true you don't know exactly what web page they're going to land on, but at least they're going to uncover some information, right. and because they themselves have gone to get it, they're more likely to incorporate it into their set of beliefs than if somebody else tries to shove it down their throats. The most successful kids, the kids that people listen to, are the ones who have figured out what the other kids want to hear. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Hey, this is Andy, the host of Talking to Teens. It would really make my day if you like the podcast, if you would head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts app and leave us a nice review. We love to hear from parents. And it really helps more parents find our podcast if there are positive reviews out there. So if you love us, head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave us a review.